As I introduced uh, at the beginning of our uh, announcements, as I said that uh, Pastor and his wife Jane are away, uh, and uh, this week and next week they'll be on vacation. And so it is uh, with uh, much joy uh, and with anticipation uh, that I introduce to you uh, the one who will bring the Word of God uh, this morning uh, to us from the book of Luke, uh, Brian Gill. And uh, it is his first time here uh, on, uh, in the Calvary pulpit. And uh, he and his wife, uh, Michelle, and their family uh, came uh, to us last fall and uh, uh, then uh, proceeded immediately into the next, uh, the membership class. And, uh, and so uh, Brian and uh, Michelle and his family have been serving here uh, for uh, not even just a year. But uh, one thing that uh, you may not be aware is that uh, uh, Brian, uh, a number of years ago, had an opportunity to pastor two small churches uh, here in New Jersey. And uh, so though he is, uh, it'll be his first time here in the Calvary pulpit, he's uh, certainly not a stranger to being in the pulpit and uh, proclaiming the word of God. And so um, I praise the Lord for uh, Brian and for other men uh, who have uh, uh, helped fulfill this role, uh, Pastor Warren as well as Gabe, and allowing uh, uh, Pastor Bobby a much-needed rest and be able to focus on some other concerns and things that they have as well. And so, if you'll please turn in your uh, uh, Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, as we uh, prepare uh, for our brother um, Brian as he comes to preach. Good morning. Thanks, Dwayne. And also, thank you, Gabe, for picking out those particular songs that are in line with the sermon. And I'd like to open up in prayer, and I'm going to use the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. So let's bow our head, our heads in prayer. Yet I sin. Eternal Father, Thou art good beyond all thought. But I am vile, wretched, miserable, blind. My lips are ready to confess, but my heart is slow to feel, and my ways reluctant to amend. I bring my soul to thee, break it, wound it, bend it, mold it, unmask to me sin's deformity, that I may hate it, abhor it, flee from it. My faculties have been a weapon of revolt against thee as a rebel. I have misused my strength and served the foul adversary of thy kingdom. Give me grace to bewail my insensate folly. Grant me to know that the way of transgressors is hard, that evil paths are wretched paths, that to depart from thee is to lose all good. I have seen the purity and beauty of thy perfect law, the happiness of those in whose heart it reigns, the calm dignity of the walk to which it calls. Yet I daily violate and contemn its precepts. Thy loving spirit strives within me, brings me scripture warnings, speaks in startling providences, allures by secret whispers. Yet I choose devices and desires to my own hurt, impiously resent, grieve, and provoke him to abandon me. All these sins I mourn, lament, and for them cry pardon. Work in me more profound and abiding repentance. Give me the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet ever trusts and loves. 
which is ever powerful and ever confident, grant that through the tears of repentance I may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Please rise for the public reading of God's word. I'll be reading and preaching from the New King James Version of the Bible today. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You may be seated. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In your King James Bibles, tax collector is called a publican. What is a parable? A parable is a simple story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And the title for the sermon is, A Humble Attitude is Required for Justification. A Humble Attitude is Required for Justification. This parable is an excellent illustration of the doctrine or teaching of justification by faith alone. Justification is at the heart of the gospel. Justification is the act of God whereby he declares believing sinners permanently and positionally righteous in Jesus Christ alone. Our church doctrinal statement defines justification very accurately. And our doctrinal statement says this. We teach that justification before God is an act of God by which he declares righteous those who through faith in Christ alone repent of their sins and confess him as sovereign Lord. This righteousness is apart from any virtue or work of man. It involves the placing of our sins on Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. By this means, God is thus, just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. By the way, imputation, that is the act of charging or reckoning something to someone's account. More simply put, the catechism that I use with my children defines justification this way, it is God regarding sinners as if they had never sinned and granting them righteousness. This parable is evangelistic for unbelievers, but it's also edifying for believers. And the immediate context for this parable is prayer. We're going to learn about the wrong attitude of prayer and the right attitude of prayer. We're going to see the results of these two attitudes, especially with regards to salvation. The larger context for this parable is the Gospel of Luke. Luke, the physician, emphasizes that Jesus, the great physician, came to heal all kinds of people. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to save all types of men. Jesus even came to save the people that society looked down on. The key verse in the Gospel of Luke is Luke chapter 19, verse 10. 
for the Son of Man has come to save, has come to seek and save that which is lost. Now, I want you to listen very closely to this quote. This is a quote by John Calvin from his famous theological book, The Institutes of Christian Religion. And I'm giving you this quote because this will set the stage for the two different attitudes we will look at in relation to our lowness, our lowliness, and God's highness. Quote, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For we all seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms, but should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect on what kind of being He is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness as a standard, we are bound to be conformed. What formerly delighted us by false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust by its extreme folly, and what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. Hence, the dread and amazement with which Scripture uniformly related. Holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking with terror that the fear of death takes hold of them, they are swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is this that men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Let's look at the first verse in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. I'll read that again. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. In this verse, we see right up front the wrong attitude. We see the wrong attitude, and the Bible plainly, plainly tells us that this wrong attitude is the reason that Jesus is teaching this parable. Jesus is giving a warning to those people who trust in their own worthiness, their own merits, their own good works, their own righteousness for salvation. And I like to say, as a side note, notice that Jesus is speaking this parable to some, to they. That's in the plural. Jesus is speaking the parable to proud Pharisees. This is called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector because Jesus teaches these Pharisees using the example of one Pharisee in particular. This is very loving of Jesus to give this stern warning to these Pharisees. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These people trusted in themselves instead of trusting in God alone. Here's a question for you, and this question will help you examine yourself as to whether you are a genuine Christian a true believer in Jesus, somebody who has had their sins forgiven. Are you trusting in yourself as a good person for salvation? I'll repeat that because it's important. Are you trusting in yourself as a good person for salvation? If you are trusting in your so-called good works to make you right with God, you are just like these Pharisees. If we could go back in time, think about this, if we could go back in time and ask these Pharisees if they trusted God, they would say, in effect, of course we do. Can't you see all the religious things that we do? We're professionals at this. 
Some of you here may be the same way. You say, I believe in Jesus. But you are also trusting in good works, your religious duties to save you. In other words, you are trusting in yourself plus Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And I have a warning for you who are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. 100% for your salvation. You have not biblically believed in Jesus because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You have said peace, peace to your own hearts when there is no peace. You're actually an enemy of God. You're on the broad road to destruction, and this is hell's fiery furnace. You are under the fierce wrath of Almighty God. Listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the most powerful and famous sermon ever preached in America. Quote, the bow of God's wrath is bent and straining. The arrow is already set on the string. And justice aims it directly at your heart. It is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, an angry God, who is not restrained by any promise or obligation that keeps that arrow from being drunk with your blood. This means that all of you whose hearts have never been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and have never been born again and made new creatures, raised from being dead in sin to a new light and life, all of you are in the hands of an angry God. This true God of the Bible is justly angry at sinners for their rebellion, for their offending His holiness. However, this same true God of the Bible is loving, merciful, and compassionate. He welcomes with open arms all who come to Him through repentant faith in His Son, Jesus. In the next section of Scripture, after this parable, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 17. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. By God's grace, you must humble yourself with a childlike attitude to enter the kingdom of heaven. Come to Christ. Come to Christ with the simplicity and the helplessness and neediness of a little child. Again, part of Luke chapter 18, verse 19 says that the Pharisees trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Here's a question. Why did the Pharisees trust in themselves to be right with God? The answer is that they falsely thought that they were righteous because they foolishly thought that they had kept or obeyed God's law perfectly. This deadly deception is expressed in verses 11 and 12 with respect to what they do and what they don't do. What does the Bible say about the possibility of keeping God's law perfectly? I'm going to give you a lot of scripture for that because the power is in the scripture. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. To continue in all things means perfect obedience. The Pharisee in our parable thinks he's blessed, but he's actually, he's cursed. He thinks he has peace with God when actually he is under the curse of God's condemnation for his unforgiven sins. The cross-reference for Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 is a verse some of you are more familiar with, including Sparks and Awana. This is the K. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, James 2.10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. To break one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments is to break them all. The perfect law of God is a reflection of a perfect God. To 
To break one commandment one time destroys God's foremost in command. To love him with, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you write the Ten Commandments on the mirror, and kids listen up, you can understand this too. If you write the Ten Commandments on a mirror and take a hammer and just smash one of the commandments, the whole mirror is going to break. Another example, if you tie a boat to a dock with a big tin-link chain and just one of the links breaks, the boat's going to become unloosed and float away to destruction. One sin, one time against an infinitely holy God warrants an infinite punishment in hell's fire. The Apostle Paul described unconverted Jews in a way that describes these Pharisees in our parable perfectly addressed in this parable. Romans chapter 2, verses 10 and 3. Romans 10, 2 and 3. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What about you? Have you submitted to the righteousness of God? For salvation, to submit. What does that mean? To come under the authority of. Have you submitted to God's way of salvation? If you have not submitted to the righteousness of God alone for salvation, this is what I pray as I'm reading it. May the Holy Spirit regenerate you, wake you from the dead, resurrect you, make you spiritually alive. May the Holy Spirit cause you to be born again through the gospel. May the Holy Spirit convict you of your sin. May the Holy Spirit give you a broken and contrite heart for your sin against God. May the Holy Spirit enable you to repent of the sin of trusting your own righteousness and give you the gift of saving faith in Jesus Christ's blood and righteousness. His substitutionary life is His righteousness. This is His perfect substitutionary life which God the Father credits or imputes to your spiritual account when you believe. God treats you as if you perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments. Jesus scored 100 on God's test of obedience. And the Father credits that perfect test score to your spiritual account, so to speak, when you believe. Jesus' blood is a substitutionary death on Calvary's cross to pay sin's penalty, sin's punishment for all who believe in Him alone for salvation. Here's a warning. And by the way, I give this warning out of love so that you will flee from the wrath to come. If you don't believe, you will pay sin's penalty of God's wrath in hell forever. If you don't believe, you pay that penalty. Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and end on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with, or pay the penalty of, in the NESB, Everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Paul gives an example of the right attitude of repentance from the sin of foolishly trusting in religious good works. He does this as a part of his testimony. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, here he describes his religious accomplishments as a Pharisee of Pharisees, without Christ as rubbish or dung, in the King James Version. In other words, by God's grace, Paul realized that he could no longer try to earn his way to heaven by attempting to bribe God. That's what that means. You're trying to bribe God with garbage filled with human waste or manure. Remember, part of Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. 
and this is referring to unbelievers, so-called good works, submitting to the righteousness of God, which means coming under the authority of God's way of salvation. This is described in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Philippians 3, 9. Paul writes, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In Galatians 2.16, this verse amazes me because it really drives the point home. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Three times in one verse, we are told that we are not saved by works. Two times in the same verse, we are told that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Knowing that a man, Galatians 2.16, knowing that, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Bible also says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in Romans 3, 23. Romans chapter 4, verse 4, is an example of this Pharisee. Romans chapter 4, verse 4 really describes this Pharisee. And we're going to see Romans 4, 5 describes the tax collector. Romans 4, 4 states, Now to him who works, the idea is working for salvation. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, the Pharisee was trusted in his own works as wages, as wages to earn his way to heaven. In this, is, in this bizarre and blasphemous scenario, this is what this means. This verse God owes salvation as a debt to all who trust themselves to be righteous. Which we know is not true. In clear contrast, the tax collector and all true believers are described in Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Romans 4, 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Listen closely. Everyone is ungodly. This verse, this verse is referring to those who humbly admit they are ungodly and trust in Christ alone for justification. Remember in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisee thought he was righteous, not a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. But Jesus is referring to those people who, by grace, confess they are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. By God's grace alone, these sinners will cry out for God's mercy. The scripture says in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God's word, to continue, God's word says, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written is a common introduction to Old Testament quotations. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to Romans 3, 18, quotes from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And I'm, I'm saying that for a reason. The Pharisee, sure, he didn't have the book of Romans, but he had these Psalms. He had the Old Testament. This Pharisee in our parable would have been familiar with these Psalms. Matter of fact, he may have even memorized these. May have even memorized, memorized them, but foolishly ignored them. Here's some verses and from the Old Testament 
in that same vein that he would have been familiar with. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, there is a generation, Proverbs 30, 12. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, says, Who can say I've made my heart clean and I'm pure from my sin? Part of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. 1 Kings 8, 46 says, For there is no one who does not sin. King Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. Ecclesiastes 7, 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Let's look at verse 9 again. I'll read it again. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. These Pharisees are actually blaspheming the name of God by indirectly calling him a liar. The Bible warns people like this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That equals not saved. Furthermore, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, which means we're not saved. The last part of our first verse in Luke 18, 9 says that the Pharisees, they despised others. They despised others. Now, this is an evil, prideful attitude. This attitude proves that these Pharisees are not righteous. It is unrighteous to despise others. The word despise is translated in the following ways in other Bible versions as looked down on, scorned, viewed others with contempt. We see the snowballing effect of sin here. The Pharisee looked down on others who had not performed their religious duties as well as they had. This is called like it is. The Pharisees were self, most of them, they were self-righteous snobs. You can see them looking down their noses with an air of superiority, with holier-than-thou attitudes. Unfortunately, sometimes even Christians do this. If you struggle in this area, by God's grace, right now, repent of this sin of pride. Clothe yourself in humility, considering others better than yourselves. I'm blessed to be in a men's leadership class. And one of the excellent books for our leaders in the making practical theology class is a book called Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. In this book, uh, in this book he says, in the footnote in the back, it's addressed primarily to the committed Christian. However, chapter 2 is titled, The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Hmm, that's interesting. Part of this chapter has a section titled, Christian Phariseeism. Christian Phariseeism. I will quote Dr. Jerry Bridges. Quote, we usually approach this story with the sense of approval that comes from reading about other people instead of ourselves. We agree that the Pharisee was dripping with religious, religious pride. But then we think the parable doesn't apply to us because we have trusted in Christ and are already justified. We shouldn't, however, relegate this parable just to the self-righteous and, and obvious sinners among unbelievers. This parable also speaks to us who are believers. I'll repeat that for emphasis. The, the parable also speaks to us who are believers. Jesus told this parable to those who are confident of their own righteousness. That is, those to those who felt good about their own performance. As long as we compare ourselves with society around us and with other believers who are not as, not as committed as we are, we are also apt to become confident of our own righteousness. Not righteousness into salvation, but at least the righteousness that, righteousness that will make God pleased with our performance. The sin of the Pharisee then can become the sin of the most orthodox and committed Christian. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we see the wrong attitude. The wrong attitude. 
as the reason Jesus told this parable. In verse 10, we see the setting for this parable. In verse 10, we see the setting for this parable. Prayer. Prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 10 says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We have two sharply contrasted people who are going to display two sharply contrasting attitudes and who, and will, who will thus have two sharply contrasting eternal destinations. Two people, two attitudes, two destinations. The Pharisees were the well-respected religious leaders, but the tax collectors, they were among the least respected. Why? They collected taxes from the fellow Jews for the Roman government. And they also pocketed what was left over for themselves. The tax collectors, they were viewed as traitors by their fellow Jews. Let's look closer at the setting of this parable. Prayer. First notice, if you're taking notes, I'd write this down, the wrong attitude of prideful prayer. The wrong attitude of prideful prayer in verses 11 and 12. And I'll read verses 11 and 12 again. The Pharisees stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, standing for prayer was normal, and that does not imply by itself any pride. However, notice the way the Pharisee prayed. He prayed with himself. Other Bible versions say to himself or about himself, the Pharisee prayed about himself fits this context best. The first four words of his prayer, it starts off pretty good. God, I thank you. But his prayer's all downhill after this. His prayer was not God-focused. It was me-focused, me, myself, and I. He repeatedly says, I, I, I. Did God hear this prayer? Did God hear this prayer? In one sense, God can hear everything because he is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. And he is omniscient, which means all-knowing. But I could ask my, the question a little more carefully this way. Did God hear his prayer approvingly? The biblical answer is no, never, impossible. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. This Pharisee, an unbeliever, he doesn't have a prayer line to God. Most people will say they pray. This is important in your evangelism. Think about this. They falsely think they are right with God because they pray. They say, I pray. However, anybody who is not a genuine Christian does not have a prayer line to God. There is no connection. There's no connection. What about Christians? Who, by definition, have a connection, a prayer line to God. Here's an application for the brethren. By that, I mean brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have unconfessed and unforsaken sin in your life, your prayer line will have spiritual static. Spiritual static. God will not hear you approvingly. Please look at Luke chapter 18, verse 11, to see what this Pharisee thanked God for. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
he congratulates himself for not being like other men. This is the beginning of his self-eulogy. Yes, you heard me right. Self-eulogy. And I got, um, I got that term from a New Testament scholar named Robert Stein. Maybe he wasn't outwardly like other men. Maybe he wasn't outwardly like other men. He says he wasn't an extortioner. In other words, he thinks he's a good person because he doesn't steal. The Pharisee says one thing, but Jesus says another in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Jesus blasted and blistered the Pharisees with his fiery preaching. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 3, Jesus defines hypocrisy. For they say and do not do. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Jesus judges. That's right. Jesus judges them with righteous judgment. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisee continues by claiming that neither is he un unjust nor an adulterer. Outwardly, this may have been true, but inwardly, he was rotten to the core. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus preached this in Matthew chapter 27 and 28. Matthew 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This Pharisee was very religious, but spiritually dead. Spiritually speaking, in King James English, he stinketh. That's the only small bit of humor in the whole, whole sermon right there. And it ties in with the text. That's okay. So if you didn't, if you didn't laugh at that, it's too late. Verse 11 ends with the Pharisee saying, or even as this tax collector, or even as this tax collector. Okay, think about this. His prideful attitude is jumping off the page here. We can almost hear the tone of his voice. He is likely to be, to be praying out loud, as was, was, was the custom. His unbelief blinded him. He had the arrogance and audacity to thank God that he had no sins to confess and forsake. Imagine that. Imagine being at a prayer meeting with people thanking God for how great they are instead of thanking God for how great thou art. The Pharisee's wrong attitude, his prideful attitude, his wicked attitude is further expressed in verse 12. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. The Pharisee actually, he went beyond the requirements of the law. He went beyond the requirements. Very religious, super religious. John MacArthur comments here, quote, by exalting his own works, the Pharisee revealed that his entire hope lay in his not being as bad as someone else. He utterly lacked any sense of his own unworthiness and sin, unquote. God does not spiritually grade us on a curve. Young people, especially, listen. God does not spiritually grade us on a curve. His standard is 100% according to the Ten Commandments. Now let's look at the right attitude of repentant prayer. <clears throat> this is a little more enjoyable to preach this part. The right attitude of repentant prayer in verse 13. 
And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The King James and my new King James start, start off this, word, this verse with the word and. Okay, but this Greek word can be translated in different ways. And the other translations, in my opinion, capture the context better by translating the Greek word as but. The use of the word but introduces the contrast. But the tax collector standing afar off. See that? This shows the tax collector at a distance from the Pharisee. He's standing afar off. He's at a distance. He may be in the back part of the temple as opposed to the front part. And the tax collector, he sensed his unworthiness. He realized he was unrighteous before a righteous God. He knows he is unholy before a holy God. He is painfully aware that he is unrighteous and unholy before a righteous and holy God. He is right where he needs to be to be made right with God. This reminds me of parts of the quote that I shared earlier. Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their own insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. Think of the prophet Isaiah or Isaiah. He was already saved and probably more godly than anybody else around. In Isaiah chapter 6, which describes his calling, cleansing, and commission as a prophet, everybody's attitude, unbelievers, believers, and especially spiritual leaders. Our attitude needs to be, it ought to be, it must be, just like Isaiah's, as he, re, as he writes in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, which means destroyed or cut off, because, I have, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Consider Luke chapter 18, verse 13 again. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His body posture, his body posture shows humility also. He would not look up with his eyes. Perhaps he would not because he could not, being so ashamed of his sins against his creator. Part of Psalm chapter 40, verse 12 says, My iniquities have overtaken me so that, so that I'm not able to look up. Maybe his eyes were filled with sincere tears as he beat or smote his chest. This is a very vivid picture of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. The first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says this. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. This is a sovereign work of God in a sinner's heart. The Spirit of God uses the Scripture of God to graciously grant the sorrow of God. Has this happened to you? Has this happened to you? Examine yourselves according to the Bible. Please turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 38. Psalm chapter 38. As you're turning, Psalm 38, verse 18 says, For I will declare my iniquity, I will be sorry for my sin. 
That's in the King James Version. I'll be sorry for my sin. And my new King James uses the word anguish in the place of sorrow. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. Anguish. It's, this is godly sorrow. Now, this is a psalm of David. But this has application for unbelievers. It's like a dual application. This has an application for unbelievers coming to Christ for salvation and application for believers coming to Christ for sanctification. By sanctification, I'm talking about practical or progressive sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ. I'm going to read part of this psalm, and I pray God does this. I pray God will graciously grant a crushing conviction of our sin. I'll pray he'll wipe us out. For our sin against him. May God enable us to confess our sin to him. Psalm 38. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 and also verses 17 and 18. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Now look at verses 17 and 18. For I'm ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. For I will be in anguish over my sin. Please turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Another psalm of David. Oh, the joy of confession and forgiveness of sins. The joy of confession and forgiveness of sins. We're going to see that in verses 1 and 2. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means rebellion. Whose sin, that is failure to hit the mark of God's perfect standard. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity means twisted or perversion. But notice the agony of unconfessed, the agony of unconfessed and unforgiven sin in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, by the way, he, uh, scholars say he was silent for about a year with respect to his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, which probably means ponder and think about this point. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Also notice, I'm going to read the first part of 6, verse 6, or, or you could call that 6a. With respect, when, you, when I read this verse, think about this verse with respect to examining the genuineness of your Christian profession of faith. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. 
For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Godly sorrow for sin is one of the marks of a true Christian. Godly sorrow for sin is one of the marks of a true Christian. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Biblical confession includes repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is turning from sin to God. Repentance is forsaking sin. The Bible states in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Please consider this plea right now from God through Jeremiah the weeping prophet in parts of Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Parts of Jeremiah 3, 12 and 13. For I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Unquote. Jeremiah preached, acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your sin. A famous example of this is in Psalm 51, which goes together with Psalm 32. Please turn to Psalm chapter 51. Let's consider the scripture. That's where the power's at. Psalm 51. Now, David was already justified. However, he was under divine discipline. He was under divine discipline from his heavenly father. He acknowledged his sins. He finally acknowledged his sins, as I said a moment ago, against God. With godly sorrow, a godly sorrow, and God grants godly sorrow. David cried out for God's mercy to forgive his sins. David desperately needed forgiveness for what? For restored fellowship and for sanctification. Talking about growing as a godly person. May God, right now, I pray that God will use the hammer of his word to break some of your hard hearts for your sin. As I read parts of Psalm 51, may God give some of you who are unbelievers right now as I preach this, a new heart. May God give you who are believers, this applies to all of us, who are believers, a cleaner heart, a heart more sensitive to sin, a heart more tender and watchful, a heart more humble and submissive, a heart that beats for the glory of God. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 and verse 17. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's referring to the sin nature. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, 
you will not despise. He won't despise a broken and contrite heart. As a matter of fact, he esteems a broken and contrite heart very highly, extremely highly. A contrite spirit. Do you know what that is? A contrite spirit. That means to be crushed in spirit, to be crushed in spirit. And this is referred to in Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. Psalm 34, 18. David writes, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Please listen to these powerful verses from Isaiah, the evangelical prophet. Isaiah or Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high, for thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Part of Isaiah chapter 66, two, verse 2, 66, 2 says this But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word? Poor, what does that mean? Poor refers to humility. Remember the title for the sermon. A humble attitude is required for justification. Dear brethren, a humble attitude is also required for sanctification. For progressive or practical, sanctification becoming more like Jesus. Think about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy. This is talking about a heavenly happiness. Happy are the poor in spirit, the sad in spirit, who declare their spiritual bankruptcy. Have you done that? Happy are those who mourn, those who are sad for their sin against God. They shall be comforted with the joy of God's forgiveness. Happy are the meek or humble. They will hunger and thirst for righteousness for salvation. Please turn forward again to Luke chapter 18, verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Many Bible versions out there. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, I believe, has the best translation. They translate the Greek word for be merciful as turn your wrath from. Turn your wrath from. This is an excellent translation. It really captures the idea. In the Greek and theological terms, be merciful is the Greek for be propitious. You ought to love those big theological words. They'll help you. They'll help you. And I'm glad from this pulpit that theological words that are biblical are used. Such a blessing. I love it. God be merciful to me or God be propitious. Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now the converse of that is grace. And grace uh, is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what we do deserve. Here's a question. What does a person deserve before he becomes a Christian? What does a person deserve before he becomes a Christian? 
If you are not, if you are not a genuine Christian, you deserve God's wrath. God's wrath is his holy anger. Why do you deserve God's wrath? You have sinned against a perfect, holy, just, and righteous God. John the Baptist preached this in John chapter 3, verse 36. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe or obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The Son refers to the Son of God. In the same chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus preached this about himself in verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemnation, in one sense, is the opposite of justification. Condemnation means guilty. Condemnation means a person is guilty for what? Their sins. A condemned person is justly under the wrath of God. For what? For his unforgiven sins. He is guilty and will perish in hell's prison of punishment and fire forever. Flee from the wrath to come. Hell is a real and dreadful place. It's real. It's dreadful. Very briefly, the Bible describes hell as everlasting punishment, everlasting fire, unquenchable fire, shame, and everlasting contempt. Hell is a place where the worm does not die. It is a place that torments, where unbelievers will be tormented day and night forever and ever and experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. With godly sorrow, with a broken and contrite heart, the tax collector cries out. The text says, said, in the context, looks like he's crying it out. He said it in a crying way. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. By God's grace, he is experiencing deep conviction. This is not something you can just work up yourself. God does it. By God's grace, he is experiencing deep conviction or, of guilt for his sins. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't rationalize his sin away with trite statements like, well, nobody is perfect. Have y'all heard that? Well, nobody is perfect. He doesn't minimize his sin by calling sin mistakes or an incident. He understands that sin is transgression. It's crossing that line. God says, don't go across it. Trans means across. And you can rebel and you go across it. Sin is transgression of the law, being a rebel, doing what God forbids. Sin is breaking the Ten Commandments. Sin is also, that was talking about sin of commission. Sin is also omission, omission. For example, a failure to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Furthermore, the tax collector does not compare himself to others. The Bible says not to do that. That's sinful. Actually, in the Greek, he describes himself as the sinner. The sinner. He's owning up to it. He is not soothed by a quick, all have sinned. He agrees with God. I'm the man. I am guilty. I have despised the commandment of the Lord and done evil in his sight. He desperately needs God's forgiveness. His sins separated him from God. His sins were tearing him up on the inside. Think about it. The load of sin on his back was too much for him to carry any longer. By God's amazing grace, by God's amazing saving grace, he managed to get a few words out. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He was begging. He was pleading with God. 
Oh God, turn your righteous wrath from me. Oh God, I beseech thee, remove your holy anger from me. Oh God, cover my condemnation. Oh God, be merciful to me. Oh God, be propitious to me. Can God be propitious to this tax collector? Yes. God is propitious to believing sinners because Jesus Christ was our propitiation on Calvary's cross. Jesus was our substitutionary, satisfactory sacrifice for sinners like you and me on the cross. Yes, God can be propitious. propitious. God can turn his wrath from this tax collector and from you this morning because Jesus bore his wrath, all of it, on the cross. Coming to a close, let's look at the first part of verse 14. We're going to see the blessed results, the blessed results of the tax collector's repentant attitude in prayer. The first part of verse 14, Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justification. Revisit that again. I love justification. Justification is the act of God, whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ alone. It is God regarding sinners as if, this is positional, as if they had never sinned and granting them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is God regarding believing sinners as if they had never sinned and granting them the righteousness of Jesus Christ. To repeat that, Jesus put on the filthy garments of sin's unrighteousness for condemnation on Calvary's cross. He bore the condemnation for all believing sinners. When these sinners believe, God forgives them for all their sins. And guess what he does? He puts on them the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. Now they are dressed appropriately for heaven. Now they are dressed appropriately for heaven. Are you dressed appropriately for heaven? What happened? What happened to the Pharisee? Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he says the Pharisee was not justified. He was not justified. He is still under God's condemnation for his unforgiven sin. Woe to him. He left the temple the same way he came. He came and left on the broad road that leads to destruction and hell's torture. Don't do that this morning if you haven't had your sins forgiven. Cry out to God to save you and to forgive you. Believe in the gospel, the good news of salvation, the forgiveness of sins by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. The Pharisee, he exemplifies Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25. That's right. Two verses that say exactly the same thing. Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16, 25. King James, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And I like this right here. Jesus states the point of his parable in Proverbs form in verse 14. This is as clear as it gets. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Interesting choice of words here. Everyone who exalts himself in pride will be humbled in a very negative way. He will be abased, which means put down 
to hell. And in my mind, I'm thinking when somebody's put down, hell is a bottomless pit. It may feel like you're falling forever. Please don't go there. Flee from the wrath to come. But the person who, by God's grace, humbles himself, he'll be exalted or lifted up. He'll be lifted up to heaven's paradise. The Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. By God's saving grace, you must repent and believe in the gospel. It's a glorious gospel. The gospel is the good news of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. How? By faith, repentance and faith, belief, trust, trusting commitment in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I want to make an important point. A desire for safety from hell, a desire for safety from hell is not enough to save you. A desire to flee from the wrath to come, that's good, but that's just part of it. Part of the means. This must be accompanied by a heartfelt commitment to deny your selfishness. You must repent of your selfishness and submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Cry out to God to give you a deep conviction of guilt for your sin against the loving and holy God. Ask God to give you a broken and contrite heart for your crimes against Him. Maybe you hear this in your head, but it's not wiping you out in your heart. It ought to. If it's not, cry out to God for that. Cry out to God for, your, for a broken and contrite heart because you have crimes against Him. Beg of God to take away your stubborn, hard heart and to replace it with a soft, submissive heart. Earnestly ask God to give you holy affections. Lovely are the ways of Christ. When you're regenerated, you see how beautiful Jesus is for the first time. Within the context of this parable, within the context of this parable, it is very important to realize that you can't save yourself by your so-called good works, good deeds, religious activities, or by being a good person, or I'll even, I just thought of this right now, by even preaching doesn't save somebody. You must hate the sin of trying to earn your way to heaven. Hate it! You must hate that. You mu why? You must hate the evil idea of adding your good, good works to the perfect work of Jesus Christ. He said it's finished. There is a work that will save you. Not yours, but the work of Christ on Calvary. To biblically believe is to exercise faith in Jesus Christ alone. As your Lord, Master, Boss, and as your Savior, the only Savior from sin, you must humble yourself on bended knee at the foot of the blood-stained cross of Calvary. Trust Jesus alone for the forever forgiveness of all your sins. Cry out from your heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's pray. I'm going to use the Valley of Vision again. The great discovery. Glorious God, I bless thee that I know thee. I once lived in the world but was ignorant of its creator, was partaker of thy providences, but knew not the provider, was blind while enjoying the sunlight, was deaf to all things spiritual, with voices all around me, understood many things, 
but had no knowledge of thy ways. Saw the world, but did not see Jesus only. O happy day, when in thy love's sovereignty thou didst look on me and call me by grace. Then did the dead heart begin to beat, the darkened eye glimmer with light, the dull ear catch thy echo, and I turned to thee and found thee, a God ready to hear, willing to save. Then did I find my heart at enmity to thee, vexing thy spirit. Then did I fall at thy feet and hear thee thunder, the soul that sinneth, it must die. But when grace made me to know thee and admire a God who hated sin, thy terrible justice held my will submissive. My thoughts were then as knives cutting my head. Then didst thou come to me in silken robes of love, and I saw thy son dying that I might live. And in that death I found my all. My soul doth sing at the remembrance of that peace. The gospel cornet brought a sound unknown to me before that reached my heart, and I lived never to lose my hold on Christ or his hold on me. Grant that I may always weep to the praise of mercy found and tell to others as long as I live that thou art a sin-pardoning God taking up the blasphemer and the ungodly and washing them from their deepest stain. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Sing one last song.